My name is Bill Daly, and um, I'm a member of the congregation here, and, and Craig is on vacation, and so I'm your speaker this morning. And um, I thought I'd preach like Paul, since we don't have windows to fall out of when you go to sleep. It'd be safer. Um, let's start with a prayer. Our Father in heaven, we're so grateful for your love and we're grateful for the opportunity to come together and worship you. Father, we're especially grateful for your word and we pray as we study it today that we'll be honest to it, true to it, and that we'll take from it the message that you have for us there and we'll be able to incorporate it into our lives. We ask all this through Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning, this is going to be less like a sermon and more like a Bible study. And um, we're going to look at a letter. And in the process, I hope we'll learn the message that the writer is sending to the recipients of the letter in their own context. And also in the process, we'll figure out how that lesson is applicable to our context and hopefully get some idea of how to approach a study of a book of the Bible. Almost all the books of the New Testament are letters and we're going to look at a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to a group of churches in what is would be southern Turkey today. Now when we get a letter, which isn't so common anymore, um, we usually enjoy getting them, and we sit down, we read through it, and the message in the letter has a flow to it, and there's context associated uh, with it. Uh, in the New, very often we take scriptures out of letters in the New Testament, and we'll apply them to points that they make, and it may be perfectly applicable. Um, and however. Sometimes if you go back and you look in the context of the message, there may be some difference of, of message or there may be depth there that we miss. So we always want to look at the context of a message. Now if I get a letter from someone in Kazakhstan, uh, I may be able to follow what it is they're relating to me, but uh, I'm going to miss out on a lot of the depth in that message. Uh, First of all, I couldn't spot it on the globe if I had to. Uh, I don't know the political system in place. I, I don't know um, any of their local customs or traditions, uh, none of the day-to-day -day things that influence um, people's lives. So before we look at a, this letter to the Galatian Christians, we need to have an understanding of the first century world. So we want to look at the environment in the Mediterranean. And in, in the first century Mediterranean world, first thing to remember, everybody was a pagan. They worshipped multiple gods who controlled everything. And anything that happened was thought to be the actions of some god. And any bad event, for anywhere from an earthquake to floods to epidemics to fires to crop loss to medical issues to loss of battles or accidents was due to someone not pleasing some particular God. As a consequence, there was pressure, pure great peer pressure, 
to worship whatever gods were recognized in your area. And if you didn't, you were going to get blamed for the problem. In addition, the Mediterranean world was ruled by the Romans. Now, the Romans were perfectly happy to let people worship as all the gods they wanted to worship, and they were even happy to incorporate those gods into their own sets of gods. In addition, Caesar Augustus had declared himself to be a god, and, and all the Caesars that followed him did the same. So, therefore, you were expected to bow to him as well as all these other gods. The one exception to all this were the Jews, who believed in one God and had done so during their, throughout their 2,000-year existence. Romans were pragmatic enough to realize that trying to get Jews to worship other gods would result in real conflict, and they were willing to allow them to worship their one God as long as they paid their taxes, kept to themselves, and they didn't run around influencing other people. Um, the Jewish leadership, especially the Pharisees, felt very compelled to make every Jew abide strictly by the law of Moses for two reasons. One, to keep the Romans off their back, and two, to create purity in that the Jews thought that the Old Testament scripture taught that it was necessary for the Jews to be fully obedient to the law of Moses for the Messiah to come and overthrow the hated Romans and establish a Jewish kingdom to rule the world. Uh, they were very happy not to associate with the Gentiles. Now, in addition, the pagans looked at the Jews and they thought they were responsible for all the anger of the gods. So they were pretty well looked down on. So what was the situation in these churches? The churches that Paul was writing to were established on his first missionary journey. And they were comprised of both Jewish converts and Gentile pagan Christian converts. Now, everyone was a new Christian. We have to remember that. Both groups were struggling to figure out this whole new Christian identity deal in light of their backgrounds. The Jews were trying to, as to whether Jewish custom was still the rule to follow, and the Gentiles trying to understand the whole concept of one God and the whole Jewish role in God's plan. This was all being learned in light of their prior pagan learnings and customs. Both groups had been raised to despise the other group. Remember, they didn't have the New Testament to guide them as we do, and they were dependent upon other teachers and the Spirit. Remember, too, that they all desperately wanted to do the right thing. So let's look at the letter. We'll be covering large sections in a summary way, and, and I encourage you to follow along in your Bibles and check that, that what I'm saying is consistent with Scripture. Uh, we should always do that. Also remember, Paul is very logical in his presentation, but it can also be very complex, okay? Hang in there. Don't give up, okay? Uh, you're going you're, you're, you're to glaze over more than a few times. So Paul immediately identifies himself as an apostle who was chosen directly by God and Christ and not by other men. Now, that's important in this identification because it becomes clear as we look at the problems that he was facing in this congregation 
And as part of his introduction, he, in verses 3 to 6, gives a very concise summary of the gospel. So, Paul, after introducing himself as, as this apostle, he immediately jumps into the problem in Galatia. In these verses, Paul quickly points out the reason for writing the letter. The Galatian Christians have been misled by false teachers from Jerusalem who are saying that they have to obey Jewish law and ritual, including requiring Gentiles to be circumcised and that Jewish Christians shouldn't mix and mingle and especially eat with Gentile Christians. Another problem that becomes clear is that the false teachers are claiming that Paul's not a real apostle or that he's only a minor apostle who only learned what he knows from other real apostles. Uh, they feel that he's not requiring Gentiles to keep Jewish tradition makes him a people pleaser. He's making it too easy on those people. Well, Paul shows his absolute anger and frustration in these verses. So Paul immediately has to start off by reestablishing his authority as, as an apostle. So at this point, Paul starts to defend, to defend his authority. He does so by relating his history that you see in the book of Acts, which, of course, they did not have. But he points out that for three years after his conversion, first of all, he was converted directly by, by, you know, by, by Christ and communicated that three years after his conversion, he went into isolation in, in, in the desert and met with no one. After three years, he went to Jerusalem and, and met with James and Peter and James, who approved of what he was doing. Fourteen years after that, he went back to Jerusalem, this time accompanied by Barnabas and Titus, and all the apostles approved of what he was doing. By the way, during that visit, Titus was a Gentile, and he points out that the leadership, the, the apostles in Jerusalem, didn't require Titus to be circumcised. Finally, to nail his authority as an equal apostle, he points out the time that he confronted Peter when Peter was influenced by similar type teachers to not eat with Gentiles. And, and he points that out um, when he says that um, in, in uh, 15 to 16, we who are Jews by birth and not sinful Gentiles know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put faith in Jesus Christ that we may be justified uh, by faith in Christ and not by works of law, because by works of the law nobody is justified. He then makes clear in no uncertain terms, his own status regarding all this. He says, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. Now, let's pause for a minute and ask the question, 
how does this, all this stuff relate to us today? I mean, it's great academics, but, but what about me? <laughs> you know, um, for starters, we live in a largely pagan world. We don't call it that, but that's what it is. Where the issues are sometimes different, and the gods are sometimes different, but often they're the same as they were in the first century. Material wealth, sex, celebrity, position in society, and we could go on and on. Today, many wear the label of Christian as an inherited title with little or no meaning to those who wear it. I was born in a Christian family. I'm a Christian. Our society, much like the first century society, demands conformity to its views of the world, a view formed outside of biblical command or example, and that wants our morals to be defined by the world's view. In the church itself, we have a diversity of individuals from many religious traditions trying to sort out what is appropriate worship? What is appropriate lifestyle? What does it mean to be a Christian? What is commanded biblically and what is choice? Thus we say, face pressures in the church and out of the church. So let's see how Paul deals with these issues with the Galatians and how they might apply his teaching to us. And so Paul starts off having, having reestablished his credibility as, a, as an apostle. Then Paul sets out to remind Jewish Christians of the role of Israel in God's plan of salvation. And remember, the Jews know this, but they've lost sight of it. So Jewish Christians, he's reminding them what exactly was that role and at the same time, he's trying to educate the Gentile Christians about that plan since they're, they're totally, it's totally new to them. It's totally ignorant to them, the whole business. And uh, we need to step back and remember that from the moment man sinned, God had a plan for man. And we see that in Genesis 3.15. Uh, where God, speaking to Satan right after man sinned, says he will crush, speaking of the Messiah, Jesus, he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. From that moment, God had a plan to redeem man through a Messiah, the Savior. From that moment on, Satan did all he could to try to prevent that from happening. And that's the story covered in the Old Testament, in essence. So Paul goes back 2,000 years to Abraham, the father of the, of the Jews. And he points out that God chose Abraham because of his faith or belief in one God. And God's promise to Abraham was that he would be the father of a... He, he gave a promise to Abraham, and there were two components to that promise. One, he was going to be the father of a great nation. And two, through his seed, his DNA, his heirs, 
that the world, all nations would be blessed and that his heirs would be blessed through this Messiah. So through this race, God also provided a hereditary line for the arrival of the Messiah, the DNA leading to Jesus. Now, that, that's the promise made to Abraham for eternity. Now, Abraham was followed by Isaac and then Jacob, believing in one God, justified by faith. When Jacob and his 11 sons joined Joseph in Egypt, it was a large family or a small tribe when the time they went down there, okay? But that's it. They were a family or a tribe. In 400 years, they were captive in Egypt. The Israelites were prolific, and they went from being a tribe to being a race. During that time, they had no written code or guidelines except belief in one God, and that very often was frequently mixed with idolatrous beliefs of the Egyptians. While they were slaves, they were immersed in the culture of the Egyptians, and they formed their ideas of right and wrong based on that culture. Okay? In a way, that's similar to those today who know a little bit about God and Jesus, wear a label of Christian, but are dependent upon our cultural standards rather than studying and following Scripture. Today, I call that our flavor of the month, morality. Um, when Moses led them out of Egypt after 400 years, they had gone from being a tribe to being a race. There were approximately two million when they left Egypt. And, but they were a race that was largely informed by their Egyptian culture. God took them into the wilderness where they were isolated. He then gave them the law at Sinai. This was 430 years after his promise to Abraham. That's when they became a nation. So the question becomes, what did the law do? One, it defines sin. It no longer was sin was no longer defined by the prevailing view of the culture, the Egyptian culture or whatever. The law defined it. Two, it, it recognized and identified the Jews as, as monotheist, as believing in one God. In all the world of paganism, this little group believed in one God, the whole concept. There's only one God. It defined the behavior their behavior is different from that of the rest of the nations, of the pagans. They were to behave differently. It showed the way, the behavior that God designed man for, for man's full enjoyment of life. And it served as a tutor or a guardian to the Jews until the Messiah, the promise to Abraham, came. Think of the law as you think of making rules for your children. You don't make rules and guidelines for your children because you're looking for an excuse to punish them. You make it because you want what's best for them, and you know if they live within those, those guidelines, their life is going to be better and blessed. That was God's plan for the Jews. So, what was the outcome of the law? Well, 
the Jews couldn't keep it. And it thus defined their sin and condemned them. There was no longer a question about right and wrong. By not keeping the law, they missed out on the blessings they could have in this life, and instead they suffered the consequences of their sin. They came to believe that salvation was through trust in their own actions of keeping the law and thus depended on their own achievements and perceived goodness compared to those pagans rather than on God's mercy. And they viewed themselves as Abraham's sole seed and recipients of the promise and they despised all non-Jews. So what was the law's relationship to this promise that God had made to Abraham. They were two separate covenants or agreements. The promise to Abraham was to carry on forever. The law was only in effect until the promise, i.e. the Messiah, came. And then it was done. It's done its job. The, the child under custody has graduated. They're, they, they, they're, they're prepared. They go on. So how does this relate to the problem in Galatia? Well, false teachers taught that Jewish Christians still were the heirs only if they maintained Jewish custom and law and that Gentile Christians had to conform to that law. It put salvation in dependence on trust in law and behavior rather than the free mercy of God. Now, Paul points out that those who rely on the law cannot keep the law and thus are condemned by the law. He points out that Christ redeemed the Jews from the law, that the blessing might come to the Gentiles through Jesus, as well as that by faith they both would receive the promise of the Spirit. Then Paul makes this fantastic conclusion. And it's, this is also in your bulletin. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female. For you're all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you're Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. What does that mean? That's one of the great scriptures in the New Testament. It clearly shows that Galatian Christians, that there's no place for division among them. They're all alike in Christ. They're all the same. They're all the same since they're all guilty of sin that can only be removed by faith in Jesus Christ. They don't need to keep the law. So, great. What does that mean for us? We're not in Galatia. Well, we're in the same situation. We can't redeem ourselves through good behavior. It's only through faith that we receive the promise of the Spirit. We are all one here together through faith. We have unity of the body of Christ. In the church, there's no place for division, status, or conflict. When you look at that scripture, what you see is a biblical definition of 
diversity, inclusion, and equity. We're all the same in Christ. So, in chapter 4, Paul goes on then and makes more points about the law has done its job. When Christ came, this job was done, the law was over. Now, having made the point that the law has finished its role, Paul admonishes the Galatians not to fall back under the idea of the law leading to their salvation. He starts that in chapter 5. He's very specific in saying that Gentile Christians don't be circumcised. He then makes a great caution that you can't have it both ways. You can't depend on the law and also depend on faith. You see, the fundamental difference is, and when I speak of depending on the law, in our context, it's us depending on our being good guys. The fundamental difference is that depending on the law is departing, depending and taking pride in your own goodness and good works. Depending on faith is acknowledging your absolute, total dependence on God's mercy in Jesus' sacrifice. So how does that apply to us? Well, when we start looking and taking pride in all the good things we've done, and we go to comparing ourselves to others, we're putting faith in God, in our behavior, rather than in his profound mercy. Our good actions aren't going to impress God. You say, well, how does all this work? Well, we're going to see in here in chapter 5 examples of how it works. But the bottom line as we look through this is that we don't behave properly according to God's commands in order to earn God's love and subsequent salvation. Rather, we behave properly because God has already loved us and he has saved us. Proper behavior is, of, is the way God's people behave. We do that because we are one with Christ and our actions represent Christ to the world. We sometimes think that if we can get people to behave properly, that somehow that will change their hearts and their attitudes, i.e., that was the approach of the law in action. When, in actual fact, in Christ, we are changed and we become new creatures, and as a consequence of our change, our behavior follows. The role of the gospel is to change hearts. That will take care of actions. Now, at one point here, Paul vents his anger about this whole business of these, false, uh, these teachers. And he, uh, he's, he's pretty graphic. You, you can read those terms. But the lesson that we see at that point in this letter is that we have to be absolutely true to Scripture in our teaching. When we will be held accountable for false teaching and in alienating fellow Christians. So we need to stay with Scripture. So, with that in mind, let's take a look at the Spirit and led church, okay? After, in, after showing the absolute falseness of the teachings, Paul sets about talking about how Christians are supposed to treat one another. So we've gone from this whole philosophical discussion, 
Paul's basically he's, he works like a, a, a lawyer. Boom, ba, boom, ba, boom, ba, boom. He's made his case. Okay, the law's done. Okay, you're Christians. Well, what does that mean? How does that show up here? You, you, my brothers and sisters, are called to be free. But do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another. We're not to use our freedom from the law to run around in sin. You see, our freedom from the law allows us to serve one another humbly, in love. The, the, to understand that concept, the, all the morals of the law are still applicable. He's not saying they're wrong. That was what, the way God wants you to live. But he's saying, you're not running around punching tickets. You're not hiding behind the fact, I did this and this, and I didn't go anywhere on the Sabbath, and blah, blah, blah. He said, no, forget that. You're free. You're free to love one another and to serve each other. That's what the freedom from the law gives us. We're not to use... Um, then he goes on and he says, for the entire law is fulfilled in this one command... Love your neighbors as yourself. If you bite and devour each other, watch out. You will be destroyed by each other. Now, those words are as applicable to the church today as they were then. It's meaningful. It means it's, it's important. And we've all seen it. We've all seen what happens when that business starts. Starting in verse 16, he spells out the basic rules of behavior. He says in 5.16, So I say, walk by the Spirit, and you'll not gratify the desires of the flesh. Now, he does not give us an in-between guidance system here. We don't get to pick and choose. There's no, there are no excuses. You, you, you'll be held you, 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 by, by it. In 17, he says, For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They're in conflict with each other, so you do not do whatever you want. Here you have the basic difference in the guidance system of being a living Christian in the guidance system of the rest of the world. The basic premise of our society is to do whatever you please and you can get away with. You can determine right or wrong by the views of the majority. There's really no right or wrong. Any behavior is justifiable as long as the person doing it thinks it's okay. Tolerance is far more important than truth. That's being led by the flesh. Paul then lists all the ways that we don't want our brethren to treat one another, us. And starting in verse 19, the acts of the flesh are obvious, sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft. You say, well, I, I, we don't see a lot of that. Hatred, discord, who? Jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. This is not, this is a type of behavior none of us want to be involved in or around. 
We don't want to be treated this way. If any of these things are present in our body, the church, and we take part in it, there's real trouble. Look to yourself. Am I part of this stuff? We live in this environment in the rest of the world. We don't want it in the body. As opposed to the actions of the flesh, worldly guidance, the fruit of the Spirit is listed as a single entity. We don't get to pick and choose characteristics that suit us and ignore the others. In 22 to 23, he says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such thing, there is no law. What's not to like about that? Isn't that the group you want to be with? Isn't that what you want to be immersed in? How do we get there? How does this come about? Well, he tells us that too in verses 24 to 26, that those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with his passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking, and envying one another. You haven't been provoking any of your fellow Christians lately, have you? Or envying them? So how do we expose ourselves to the Spirit? We have Scripture. We have to be in it. If we are and we listen, the Spirit will work. If we do not get the Spirit, we, we do not get the Spirit through entertainment and social media. Right and wrong aren't decided by the moral majority opinion. You know, if we're spending 20 to 40 hours a week immersed in the social world, and we think in 20 minutes in here, in my case longer, uh, is going to fix you for the week, uh, we're deceiving ourselves. So, doing good to all. Paul now addresses how do we treat one another in and out of the church. Really practical stuff here. As you said, about time. How do we treat a brother caught in sin? Brothers and sisters, if someone's caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit will restore the person gently. But watch yourselves, or you may be tempted. We must remember, we're no more less vulnerable than our brother. If you find a fault in him, rather than being condemning, be empathetic. Look at yourself. Realize that, you know, that, that could be me. How can I help him? Help rather than judge. Carry one another's burdens, and in this you'll fulfill the law of Christ. That's good sense. Be humble. If anyone thinks that they are something when they're not, they deceive themselves. Each one should test his own actions, and then they can take pride in themselves alone without comparing themselves to someone else. For each one should carry his own load. Makes sense, doesn't it? Appreciate instruction. Nevertheless, the one who receives instruction in the word should share all good things with their instructor. Okay? We, we need to be teachable, and we need to appreciate it. Okay? Don't fool yourself. You will not fool God. Do not be deceived. God 
cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. Whoever sows to the flesh, to please their flesh from the flesh will reap destruction. Whoever sows to please the Spirit from the Spirit will reap eternal life. Persevere. Let us not grow weary. In How often do you get weary? Let us not grow weary in doing good. For at the proper time we'll reap a harvest if we don't give up. It's awfully easy to get discouraged and give up. No, we don't want to do that. We've got to persist. Do the right thing to everybody. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. Good stuff, huh? Are those the people you want to be around? Is that you want here? Or do you want what's out there? You can't have it both ways. Then Paul repeats his basic message. Don't listen to false teachers. They're hypocrites. They're self-serving. So what are the takeaways? Faith in Christ and God's mercy saves us, not our goodness. I think all of us look at ourselves. We know our goodness isn't going to do the trick. All Christians are equal. Because you see, we're all in the same boat. We're dependent on God's mercy. Thus, we must treat each other equally and with love. I can't be superior to you. I'm not better than you. I can't look at something you're doing wrong and think, man, I'm great. That's not my problem. None of us is better than the other. There's no room for strife and division in the church. Let's don't pick each other apart. Man, that's, that, you go to that every day in the world. You walk out of this building... That's the stuff going on all the time. That's not what you want. That doesn't belong here. That's not God's people. We're God's people in this world. Our values and our behavior are dictated by God's word, scripture, not by the values of society. We need to be in the word. We need to be reading. That's where the spirit works. That's what changes. That's that new creation. And that new creation leads to different behavior, different attitude. We're all Abraham's seed. You see, Abraham's seed weren't the Jews in these races. Abraham's seed are the people of faith. And that's the whole point Paul's making to the Galatian Christians. That, that you're one. The church is united. You're one. And that's what we need. That's what it's about, is the body being united. 